Hello, Alliance family. I'm so glad you've joined us for our 40 days of prayer. Our theme is holiness this week. You're probably aware that we are looking at our statement of faith. And every time I pick that up, I have a sense of this holy task that I've been assigned for us to take a new look at that statement. Recently, I walked into our bedroom at home to grab something in the morning, and there my wife with a tear streaming down her face, eyes closed, hands lifted to heaven with the worship music playing, and I realized I had just walked into a holy moment, and I backed away quietly. In the book of Exodus, on the side of the mountain, Moses is given instruction to take four equal parts of fragrant spices and have a perfumer mix them together because there was to be this holy fragrance that was to be used at the tent of meeting alone. We have the concept of holiness because we have a holy God, pure, undefiled and undefilable, our God who is utterly pure and completely separate from all that is broken and sinful. This theme of holiness, the whole concept of our God being a holy God should draw us into worship, away from the noise of the world, away from the clutter of our minds, away from all that distracts and, and calling us into that mysterious, the beautiful, the sacred. A holy God calls us to himself. Let's enter in. Repeat his last line. Oh, there we go. I just want to repeat his last line. The holy God calls us into relationship with himself. And so please, if you will, uh, bow your heads and join me in prayer. Lord, oh, we are excited. We are excited that we get to start a new year with watching two members of our family confess you as Lord and Savior and, and lay down in death and rise in newness of life with you. That is exciting, and that is all made possible because of your holiness and because of how you love us in that holiness. And so, Father, as we prepare to open your word, we ask that you would speak, that you would teach us, that this would be a holy time. This would be a time set apart from you, or set apart for you, rather, from the distractions of this world. Whatever is occupying our thoughts right now that isn't you, remove those. Let this be a time where we can come before you totally surrendered and lay down our hearts, lay down our lives, and just draw closer to you. We love you and we praise you. We thank you for the chance that we have to gather and to look at your word together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as James explained and as President Stumbo introduced, the 40 days of prayer that hopefully we put it in the bulletin, we sent out emails with links, hopefully you've signed up for this. It's never too late. If you go to cmalliance.org, it's right there on the homepage how to sign up, and you'll just get an email every week with, hey, here's what to pray for every day this week. And so you'll get one email a week, but then it'll tell you, today we're praying for this, today we're praying for this. And the weeks are broken down into themes. And you'll see as we go through this, we're going to preach along with this. And you'll see that it builds and it builds on one another. And we're starting off where you really have to start off with the holiness of God. And so we're going to be in Isaiah 6, the first eight verses, 
which is one of my absolute favorite passages when you're considering who the Lord is, who God, the Alpha and Omega is. And this is just such a poignant passage. When you look at Isaiah's interaction with the Lord, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple key figures in these eight verses. It starts off with, in the year King Uzziah died. So we're going to look at Uzziah, and we're going to look at the people of Israel so that we can understand why Isaiah was led to include this detail. And then it introduces the seraphim, and we're going to consider who are the seraphim. What do we learn from them? But ultimately, Uzziah, Isaiah, the seraphim, they're all pointing to God in his holiness. And we're going to look at, okay, what then is our response to God's holiness? And in his holiness, how does God respond to us? Uh, so if you will, if you want to read along or if you just want to listen, we'll be in Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. So like I mentioned, it begins with Uzziah. And why is this important? Why does Isaiah, why doesn't he just say in the seventh year, in the eighth year, or whatever, you know, why does he point out King Uzziah? Well, we have to understand who Uzziah was to the people of Israel. He was a king of prosperous times for the people of Israel. If you go back to 2 Chronicles 26, don't worry about turning there. This is going to be kind of the historical detail of Uzziah. Just, just listen to this, but listen to who Uzziah was, and you'll start to understand that the people were freaked out in this year that King Uzziah died. So he reigned for 52 years, and in 2 Chronicles 26, starting in verse 5 and then 7 through 10 and 15, we see a glimpse of what this reign, what his time as king meant for the people of Israel. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord... God made him prosper. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and the Munites. The Ammonites paid tributes to Uzziah, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds, both in the Shephelah and in the plain. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war and divisions according to the number and the muster. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. So Uzziah, things are looking good for the people of Israel. In those verses, we see political power and influence. 
We see military power and might. Nobody could stand against them. We see, I mean, he says he invented machines, so their technology is increasing. Every sector, it talks about the fields and the fertile soil and the vine dressers and the thousands of herds. Agrarian is booming. I mean, in every sector of the economy, of society, Uzziah is leading the people of Israel forward to become this might that the whole world recognizes. These are good times for the people of Israel, and then he dies. And so people are kind of freaking out. What are we going to do? This is someone who has led us to military power. This is someone who has led us to economic prosperity. This is someone who has led us to social influence. Everything is going well. What's going to happen to us now that he's gone? But we have to understand the other side of Uzziah's reign. Because everything wasn't fantastic. It might have seemed like that. But did you catch some of the details? And it talked about his prospering. Back in verse 5, it says, Who instructed him, Zechariah instructed Uzziah in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And then verse 15, it says, In Jerusalem he made machines invented by skillful men to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far for he was marvelously helped. See, as long as Uzziah kept his eyes on God, things went well. But that wasn't the whole story to Uzziah's reign, and the people forgot this. In their panic over his death, they overlooked the other half of Uzziah's reign. Second Chronicles, continuing in the very next verse, verse 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord's, but for the priests, the son of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. See, Uzziah, he gets proud. He says, This might this influence, this is all about me. I have a right. Remember, in the Old Testament, God was very explicitly clear on who was allowed into certain parts of the temple to burn incense on the altars. This was something reserved for the priests, the men who had been set aside from life, who had been consecrated for the Lord. And Uzziah, this was a very holy process. And Uzziah, without going through this holy process, without going through this consecration, in his ego said, I have this right. I have this right to do this because of how mighty I am. And the priests, I mean, they could have lost their heads for this, literally. But the priests who were consecrated, who chose to honor the Lord, they stood up to him and they said, this isn't right, what are you doing? You're directly disobeying God in your arrogance. You need to get out. And how does Uzziah respond? Verse 19, then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Uzziah was held accountable and he didn't respond appropriately. They tried to hold him accountable. They tried to say, Uzziah, this is not correct in the sight of the Lord. And he got angry at them. He had the chance to repent. He had the chance to admit that what he did was wrong and to turn. And instead, he responded in his arrogance with anger at the people who tried to hold him accountable. And what else do we see about Uzziah's reign? In 2 Kings 15, 3 through 4, it said, And Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. 
those details, those are important. It says he was doing what was right in sight of the Lord, but then you see that both, are, both sides are at fault here. Uzziah is at fault and the people of Israel at fault. You can't put the blame on either one. Because Uzziah may have personally been following the Lord at the start, but then it says, nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. This is referring to places of idol worship that they had, they had borrowed from neighboring cultures. And they set up these altars on the high places because the other cultures thought that the closer you, like the further you got up vertically, the closer you got to the gods. And Uzziah had the chance to protect the people of Israel. As king, he could have ordered that these high places were destroyed. And we know that other kings in Israel's time did this. Uzziah had the chance to look at the behavior of the people and correct it, and he did nothing. Uzziah is at fault here in the way that he led, or rather chose not to. But make no mistake, the people of Israel are equally at fault. Because what did it say? Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. So the people had a leader who was following God for a time. Sure, he may not have been doing, he may not have been taking down the idols and the altars, but he was following God. For a time, Uzziah was modeling the appropriate heart for the people, but it says the people still sacrificed on the high places. And so the people ignored this leadership. And it even said he followed after, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. So you have back-to-back father-son kings who had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and the people chose to ignore that example. Both sides are at fault here. And why is this a big deal? Keep in mind that this whole passage is about the holiness of God. So we're introduced to the context in which Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne. You have a king who everyone remembered the good stuff. We were strong. We were rich. We had more fields than we knew what to do with. Nations as far away as Egypt were afraid of us and paid tribute to us. Things were going well because they're overlooking the arrogance and the sin in Uzziah's life. And they're overlooking the arrogance and the sin in their own life. And the question that we have to ask ourselves that we must be willing to ask ourselves when we consider the holiness of God, have we become so blinded by our own pride and our own arrogance to presume that our problems are more monumental than the Lord sitting on His throne? Have we become so blinded by pride and arrogance? I mean, Isaiah was held accountable for his arrogance and his disobedience, and he responded in anger when the priests, when the holy ones, the people that God had said, I choose you, I set you apart to be my representatives. Everyone listened to them. And when they tried to do what God had told them to do, Uzziah became angry at them. How many times today do we become angry when people try and hold us accountable? You don't have that right. You can't tell me that. Don't tell me how to live. Have we become like Uzziah? Have we become like the people of Israel where we may have godly leaders in our lives? We may have godly influences. My father, I've said this before, my dad is one of the godliest men I know. Actually, probably the godliest man I personally know. That does nothing for me. My dad's godliness, him following after the Lord, does nothing for me. That will not get me into heaven. I will not be able to say, yeah, but God, my dad lived sold out for you. No. Have we become so unwilling to adjust our own lives despite the influences that may be in our life given to us by God? Have we become like the people of Israel to the point that where something goes wrong in our life, when King Uzziah dies, 
Think about whoever King Uzziah is in your life, whether it's a politician, whether it's a family member, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a friend. When King Uzziah in your life dies, have you become so blinded that your whole worldview is shattered? Maybe we need to be reminded that in the year that King Uzziah died, in the year of whatever happened, God is on the throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. The temple that Uzziah was not even allowed into. I mean, what a contrast that Isaiah gives here. He says, look, I, Uzziah wasn't even allowed into this space. And the very bottom, the hem, the hem of God's robe fills the entirety of this space that Uzziah was not holy enough to enter into. Do we need that reminder in our lives that God is on the throne and the train of his robe fills the temple? This is how Isaiah begins this passage. And then the very next people were inter or beings were introduced to are the seraphim. What does it say? It says the seraphim. I saw two seraphim. They had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Who are the seraphim? When we think of angels, we think of that cute little hallmark baby Cupid, right? They're round and they're plump and they're chubby and you just want to pinch their cheeks. There's a reason why every time angels appear to people in the Bible, the first words out of their mouth are, do not be afraid. They are mighty warriors. They are powerful. They are burning beings. And the name seraphim literally means the fiery ones. It translates to the fiery ones. And most biblical scholars agree that it is, it is directly given and comes from their burning zeal and passion for the Lord. Think about your name. I'm going to call out my elders because that's what they signed up for. <laughs> Joseph Curry, Phil Callendine, Tim Smith, Mike Wilson. Could someone look at that name and say, man, that name is synonymous with burning zeal and passion for the Lord. Man, Mike Wilson is so on fire for God that we are literally going to name him the fiery one because a passion for the Lord defines his existence. This is who the seraphim are. I mean, how incredible. And I love the image that we don't see their face. They are, so, they are burning with zeal for the Lord, and they know that they don't deserve to look on the Lord. They cover their face in humility and awe and wonder and reverence and submission to the holiness of God. And I love that image that we don't need to know their face. We just need to know their words of praise. What a lesson in that. Do you know my prayer is regularly that you all forget my face? I mean, I'm dead serious. I don't want you to remember me. When I die one day, I hope people forget my face. But I hope they remember. I, I, I can't think of his name. I'm not sure what he looks like. But man, that dude was on fire for God. That's what I remember about his existence. That's what I remember about his life. Imagine if the world could say that about the American church. I don't remember their face, but their life was defined by a burning zeal for the Lord. This is who the seraphim are. This is who Isaiah saw. And what did they cry out? They cried out, holy, holy, holy holy is the Lord. 
And that, that rep the repetition of holy, 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 that was a linguistic feature in the, cult the culture where you used, if you said something three times like that, what you were saying is this person is the perfect, complete essence of this thing, right? So if you said Sam is hungry, 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 Sam is, Sam is hungriness incarnate. So what they were saying is they were saying the Lord on his throne is is the definition of holiness, is the standard of holiness. He is perfect holiness. There is nothing in him that is not holiness. So the question naturally then is, what is holiness? And I love Wayne Grudem's definition. Grudem explains holiness as the doctrine that God is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own glory. And so when they say that he is holy, 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 they are saying he is perfect holiness. They are saying that God is perfectly separated from sin. This is, you cannot lessen this. You cannot reduce this. You cannot eliminate this from the character of God in any way, shape, or form. God always has been, always is, and always will be perfect holiness. And this is what the seraphim have given their lives to declaring and his holiness is on display here in his position. We looked at Isaiah, or we looked at Isaiah says King Uzziah died, and God is on his throne. In the position that Isaiah saw God, we see his holiness on display. In the praise from the seraphim, we see that God's holiness is on display. And as we look in a little bit, keep power in the back of your mind. And we're going to see how God in his holiness responds to Isaiah in a way that only someone who is perfectly holy could do. But this is what they are declaring about the Lord. The seraphim are declaring that God is holy, holy, holy. And how does Isaiah respond to this? Because keep in mind that God will always do that which brings him glory. Everything that happens, God does to bring him glory and to point to Jesus as Lord. This includes the past year. This includes 2021 that we are already in. We have no clue. Pam, what's going to happen June 2nd of this year? You have no idea. See, what's going to happen August 17th? You have no idea. God does. And I guarantee you it's going to be to point to Jesus. And I guarantee you that what happens on that day is going to be to bring him glory because that is who God is. And that is what he is always doing. And so with that in the back of our minds, how does Isaiah respond? How does Isaiah respond to this holy God who is holiness incarnate, who is perfect holiness? He has seen the seraphim covering their face and declaring this. And Isaiah's response is, woe is me. And in the original language, this is a deep guttural groan of utter despair and lostness. This is all the pain that you have ever felt in your entire life boiled down into one groan of woe is me. And he is not alone in this. This self-awareness, this grief, this despair when confronted with the perfect holiness of God, the response is not, oh cool, I should get a video of it to share online. The response is not, oh, I better tweet about this so everybody knows how holy I am that I was able to be in the holiness of God. How does Isaiah respond with this guttural groan of woe is me? How do people in Scripture respond when they encounter the holiness of God? You have Job 42, 5-6. This is Job speaking. I had heard of you by the hearing of ear, but now my eye sees you. Now I see you. 
Job says, I, I'd heard of you. I knew of you, but now I see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Peter in Luke 5.8, Jesus reveals himself. It's a moment where Jesus, I am God, there is no doubt. How does Peter respond? But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. John in Revelation 1.17, when he sees Jesus, when he sees the Lord in his holiness, John, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he said to me, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. When we encounter the holiness of God, it ought to drive us, not even to our knees, it ought to drive us to our face before him in repentance and awareness of how unholy we are. Because here's the incredible thing about God. Here is, here is the, the absolutely mind-blowing thing about God. When I said, keep in mind that he will always do that which brings him glory. He will always do that which points to Jesus as Lord. So you have Isaiah's response. You have Isaiah's response of, woe is me. He says, I am a, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips and unclean hearts. Woe is me. He recognizes that I'm dead. I don't come close to this. This is, this is holiness. This is holiness on his throne. I'm dead. How does God respond? In doing that which points to Jesus as Lord, in doing that which brings him glory, God in his holiness had every right to remove Isaiah from his presence. God had every right to say, yeah, you are, be gone. Because sin can have no part of God's presence. God had that right. But how did God respond in his holiness? He sends an intermediary. In this case, he sends one of the seraphim to touch Isaiah's lips. Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips. And so God sends a seraphim to symbolically cleanse and purify Isaiah's lips. How does God respond to our unholiness? He sends an intermediary to cleanse us in the same way that he cleansed Isaiah. Or he cleansed Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore I will divide him, him being Jesus, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God in his holiness responds to our unholiness by sending an intermediary to redeem us. God had every right to remove Isaiah from his presence and say, yeah, yeah, you're unclean. You can't be near me. God has every right to look at us and say, yeah, yes, Sam, you're unclean. You can't come near me. And instead, God, in his holiness, to bring glory to his name, to point to Jesus, sends an intermediary to cleanse and to redeem us. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. There's not a single person who ever has lived, ever is living, or ever will live who could do what God did. The only person who could make perfect redemption for our unholiness is a perfectly holy Lord. 
in the seraphim cleansing Isaiah, in Jesus cleansing us, we see the holiness, the power of God. Earlier I said God's holiness is on display in His position, His praise, and His power. In the cleansing of Isaiah, in the cleansing of our sins, you see the power of God because only a perfectly holy God could make perfect atonement for our sins. Everything points to just how holy the Lord is. And I think we forget that so regularly. Yeah, we know God is up there on His throne. But do we forget that the train of His robe fills the temple, the temple that really we have no right to enter into. But in His holiness, He sends that intermediary to cleanse us. It's incredible. I mean, really, we're going to do something that we don't normally do. You guys know I like to switch it up. Keep you on your toes. We're going to take 60 seconds. And I just want you to close your eyes. And I want you to contemplate the holiness of God in contrast to your own unholiness. Keep your eyes closed. Keep contemplating, but listen. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. The seraphim who don't even dare to look at God, who call out, Holy, holy, holy. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of the seraphim, and they don't even dare to look at God. Has the foundations of the threshold ever shaken at your voice? Consider how holy the Lord is. All right. Thanks for doing that. How many of you in that time came away with a profound sense of, I'm pretty awesome? You never should. Please, may our lives be in constant awareness of the holiness of God and how little we really deserve to be in His presence. But that shouldn't fill you with despair because just like Isaiah, God looks at His unholy creation and in His holiness, He offers relationship. That's... Why do you think I say I'm excited all the time? Because I have woken up every moment since I declared Jesus as Lord and Savior when I was four years old in my parents' bedroom. I have woken up cleansed. I have woken up redeemed. On my worst day, I was still cleansed and redeemed. Because God in His holiness, on His throne, looked at me and said, Go cleanse him. Redeem him. Because I love him. I, I mean, that's, that's mind-blowing. That is perfect power. 
Think of your favorite spiritual figure. It doesn't have to be a pastor. It could be an author. It could be a podcast host. It could be a personal family member. Think of the most godly person you know who has influenced and shaped your faith more than anyone else. They don't even come close to having an iota of the power to cleanse you. Your favorite pastor does not shake the foundations of the thresholds when he speaks. The most influential, your father, your mother, the most godly person you know who has poured into your life, they do not have the power to cleanse you and to redeem you. God in his perfect holiness does and did through the intermediary Jesus Christ our Savior. That is holiness. Because let's be honest, even if we were given that power for just a second, answer truthfully, how many of you would offer redemption and cleansing to the whole world? And I'm talking about, think of the worst people in history. Redemption and cleansing was offered and available to them in the same way that it's available to you. I think of the man who abused my brother and molested him. Now, I might be closer to offering him redemption and cleansing, but there were years where I would have said, absolutely not. Zero chance that I'm giving that guy a second chance. God in his perfect holiness looked at the entirety of creation. Even the people who he knew would reject him, even the people who he knew would not only reject him, but would do so with, with vitriol and with spite and with scorn. God sent Jesus as an intermediary to offer redemption and cleansing because God is holy, holy, holy. Never forget how holy God is. And then finally, let's consider Isaiah's second response. If Isaiah's first response to seeing God's holiness is, woe is me, I am an unclean man who dwells in the midst of unclean people. Woe is me. If John's response is to fall over as if dead, if Job's response is to say, I repent and despise myself, if Peter's response is to say, Lord, depart from me, and then there's the redemption, and then there's the cleansing, what does Isaiah's second response tell us about God's holiness? Isaiah responds in worship through offering himself entirely. How does that passage in Isaiah end? The seraphim touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. I mean, you want to talk about a radical 180 in personality and perspective? You have Isaiah offering a guttural groan of, woe is me, I am dead. I have nothing to offer. Woe is me, this is the most pain I've ever felt in my life. To boldly responding, here I am, send me. That is the response to the holiness of God. That is the completion of the response to the holiness of God. When we think about the holiness of God, when we contemplate the holiness of God, there should be that woe is me. I repent. I despise myself. Depart from me. I am a man of unclean lips. I fall over as if dead. But then when we realize that Jesus has cleansed us, that we have been redeemed because of God's holiness, Isaiah responds and he says, here I am. Send me. I'm yours. Everything I have. My life. It's yours. God, you have cleansed me. I didn't deserve this in any way, shape, or form. Isaiah's under no delusions. Isaiah fully recognizes who he is before the holiness of the Lord, and when the Lord cleanses him, Isaiah's immediate response is complete sacrifice of self. 
It's pure worship. I mean, consider that. That God has the right to remove us, but He offers relationship. And so in that response to relationship, there ought to be, there demands to be complete surrender. Because anything less is just, it's insulting. God is perfect holiness. God cleanses you even though you don't deserve it. And you say, I'll give you 50%. I didn't deserve to be in your presence. I didn't deserve to have a relationship with you. I deserved death. You offered redemption. You offered cleansing. You get my behavior on Sunday. But the rest of the week, that's still for me, okay? Works. No, Isaiah gives us the only appropriate, the only possible response. Lord, here I am. Here's my life. Here's everything about me. It's yours. You have given me what I could never earn on my own. You have given me what I don't deserve. So in response, I give you all of me. This is the response to God's holiness. And so consider. Consider Uzziah and the people of Israel. Consider Uzziah who started off well, who started off strong, but allowed. I mean, what did those verses say? It said that as long as he sought the Lord, God was with him and caused him to prosper. He grew strong. He grew famous because he was marvelously, it says he was marvelously helped. He was helped supernaturally, beyond his own. So Uzziah starts off strong, and then he forgets who's really the one in control, and he becomes proud and arrogant and entitled. I mean, the entitlement to walk into the temple, to walk into a holy place and say, I deserve to be here. This is what happens to Uzziah when he stops paying attention to how, how holy God is. And he stops holding the people around him accountable and he allows them to continue in their sin. And keep in mind, he's talking about God's people. Uzziah was responsible for God's people. I'm not saying you're walking up to strangers and slapping them in the face. You're a sinner. Uzziah wasn't responsible for the nations around him. Uzziah was responsible for leading God's people closer to God, and he neglected this. Husbands, you will one day be held accountable for how you led your family. Have you neglected the high places in your family's life? Have you neglected the altars and the idols in your family's life because it's just easier that way? You will be held accountable in the same way that Uzziah was accountable for the people of Israel. Parents, you will be held accountable for your children. You will be held accountable for the idols and the high places that you allow to remain in your children's life because you have been entrusted with them in the same way that Uzziah was entrusted with the people of Israel. Have you allowed those idols to remain in your children's lives because it's just easier that way? Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Hebrews says, do not neglect gathering together, but continue to meet, encouraging one another, preparing one another for the day that is coming. You have been given to one another to hold each other accountable. Have you allowed idols to remain in your best friend's life because it's just easier that way? If I look at Phil, someone I love dearly, and I see an idol, I see a high place in his life, and I say, that'd be a really uncomfortable conversation. I'm just going to let him keep worshiping there. I'm going to be held accountable for that. Have we become like Uzziah, where we have allowed the people in our lives to continue to worship at the high places because it's just easier that way? Or have we become like the people of Israel who may have a godly influence in our lives, 
but it's easier to continue in our habits, and so we keep going to those high places despite the model they have set for us because it's really hard to change a habit. So I'm just I'm going to keep doing what I'm used to because it's what I see everybody else around me doing. Have we become like the people of Israel? Consider the seraphim, beings whose name comes from a burning zeal and passion for the Lord. And simply ask yourself, could anyone say that my name is synonymous with burning passion for the Lord? And in that burning and passion for the Lord, you still see the humility to cover their face because they know they don't deserve to look on the face of God the Almighty. Consider the two responses of Isaiah. Woe is me. The repentance, the awareness, the grief. I mean, the sin of Isaiah devastates Isaiah. Does your own sin devastate you? Or have I too often sought to excuse it? Well, yeah, my words weren't seen. I mean, what does the Bible say about our words? What does it say about our thoughts? What does it say about our actions? It tells us how we are to live. It tells us how we are to speak. It tells us how we are to work. And when I mess up, it's not a mess up. It's sin. It is sin. It's not a little oopsie. It's sin. It is anything other than the holiness of God. And the sin in my life should devastate me. It should cause me to groan out, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Do we respond like Isaiah when we contemplate the holiness of God? And then do we respond like Isaiah's second part when we contemplate what God did in His holiness? God redeemed me. I did nothing to deserve heaven. Don't you ever dare put me on a pedestal. I mean, I hope I can truthfully say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, but make no mistake, anything good in me is entirely God. I don't want you to be anything like Sam. I want you to be like Jesus. I don't deserve heaven in any way, shape, or form. But God looked at me and he offered me that cleansing redemption. And the response in my heart must be, here I am, Lord. You get everything. I'm holding nothing back. I don't care if I'm 10. I don't care if I'm 93. Every breath I take is yours. Consider Uzziah. Consider the Israelites. Consider the seraphim. Consider Isaiah. Consider your own life and ask yourself, who do you most regularly resemble? Because God, in the year 2020, God is on his throne and the hem of his robe fills the temple. God is holy, holy, holy. How are you and I going to respond to that holiness? This is a decision that is yours and yours alone. I can't make it for you. The elders can't make it for you. How are you going to respond to the holiness of God? This week, read Job 38 through 42 and Psalm 90. And just ask, is my life an appropriate declaration in response to the holiness of God? There's five chapters. If you want, read one a day, Monday through Friday, and then read them all Saturday. That's a fantastic way to do this. Break it into chunks and then read it all together. And just ask, is my life an appropriate response to the holiness of God? You'll see the holiness of God on display in these chapters. And then the prayer is simple. As we're considering these 40 days of prayers, we're considering starting with week one holiness. I just, so often we make our prayer about ourselves. And if there are big things in your life, make no mistake, there are things in our lives we're called to pray about. We're called to pray for one another. 
So still take time this week to pray for the things in your life, the burdens. But I challenge you to set aside time every day to do nothing but pray and praise God for his holiness. As you read Job 38, as you read Job 39, praise the Lord for the holiness you see in those chapters and nothing else. Not, hey God, I need some stuff from you. And by the way, you're holy, thank you. But just set aside time to just pray, praising the Lord for his holiness and recognizing that he is holy, holy, holy. Please join me in prayer now. Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. Every element of this life points to you and to your holiness, and we praise you for that. We have nothing else to add other than that you are holy, holy, holy. Teach us how to live lives that are an appropriate response to that holiness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.